we're going to be talking about the, the topic of atonement. Um, it's a word probably most of us are familiar with. And if English isn't your first language. It's, it's, it's a word we use just to describe the sacrifice of Christ. Um, we're going to read Hebrews 2 in a minute, but, but before we do that, I just want to mention why, um, mention why we're talking about this tonight. You know, a few weeks ago I talked about the importance of, of sharing our faith. Um, and, and then last week I talked about how loving others because Christ loved us and without fearing rejection is so important. And this week I wanted to focus on the theology of the atonement as we get closer to Pentecost next week. Because Pentecost is one of these wonderful days where we get to celebrate the giving of the Holy Spirit. And, and to really understand what that means, we really have to understand what the atonement was all about. Because as Christians, we really want to make sure we sort of know what we're believing in. And so to start, you know, I just want to give you a little bit of background on some of the words we use and why. You know, atonement, as we understand it historically from a historically reformed Protestant tradition, is, is also called penal substitutionary atonement, which basically just means this, that Christ was punished, he was penalized, uh, in, in place of us, which is the substitutionary part, uh, and, and that the atonement was through that our sins were atoned for, our sins are forgiven, our sins are washed away. And this is sort of the general Christian Orthodox understanding that we have held since the Reformation. Um, it, but recently, because of modern philosophy and modern thought, this idea has really become under attack. You know, if you type into Google, and I recommend you do this, there's some interesting things out there, uh, criticism of the atonement or, or theories of the cross, you'll find all of these people who sort of have, have taken this historical understanding, this idea of atonement, and made it palatable for what we think and believe now. And so tonight we're going to talk about two texts, but the first one I want to talk about before we read the second, which is the story of Abraham and Isaac. <laughs> And I, I'm sitting here hearing that story read again, and I think, this is such an intense story. Why in the world is this something we teach to children in Sunday school? You know, I didn't grow up going to church, but I remember when I first started, this was one of the first stories I heard thinking, this is messed up. You know, we have Abraham and Isaac, and here we know in Scripture that God was teaching us something he wanted to make clear that he later clarified even further with Moses and the giving of the law. That this idea of atonement for sins is something that is necessary, a part of God and who he is. You know, and we see this with the sacrificial system later. You know, but some people really take issue with this. And they really see this story or things like this in Scripture and say, this God is really messed up. I want to show you some pictures of, of this story just because I think it's fun. Um, this one looks like Switzerland. Um, so I picked this one, and, and, and somehow Abraham, you know, putting a cold compress on Isaac's forehead has helped him relax. Um, yeah, I don't, you know, artists are great. If you're an artist, I put these up for you if you're a right-brained person, just so you can visualize what's happening. You know, the next one is kind of fun. It's sort of a Greco-Roman style dramatic thing. Um, you kind of have it all in there. You have the knife and the son, who somehow is so much smaller than Abraham, yet still built muscularly like an adult. And then you have, you know, this magical ram that appears with the angel and everything sort of all contained. And then this last one is my personal favorite. Um, <laughs> you know, you have, 
You have Abraham with his white cloak, which is really helpful, the knife off to the side. Um, actually, there is a completely, if you're curious, someone who was very, very creative illustrated the entire Bible with Legos. Um, you can find it online. It's, it's very entertaining. Um, but for those of you who are right-brained people, there you go. You can sort of think about this, this event. You know, this story is great for a lot of reasons, and some people don't like it, but I think it's fabulous. I think it's fabulous because this gives us such a great instance and such a great insight into God, I think, especially when you consider Abraham's past, his noted failures, his struggle with faith, and because of the end result of this sacrifice, which we will get to. See, atonement also, as we look to the New Testament, shows us what we learn with Christ with Easter. You know, consider this season we're in, this post-Easter waiting for Pentecost season. We, we are meant to, not only historically the church has done this, but we are meant to be considering the cross of Christ much longer than just Easter. You know, this time after Easter, if, if we had a, a more liturgical service in the evening, you would, or if you come to the morning or if you go to an Anglican church, pastors wear white. And, and the decoration behind the altar is white because it's still thinking and, and meditating on the sacrifice of Christ on Good Friday and the atonement of our sins in Easter. And so tonight, as we look to our New Testament text, which is going to be in Hebrews chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there, um, I want to go through this and think about this as we prepare for Pentecost and what we learn about the atonement. So as I said, we're going to be reading in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 18, and we're going to tie this in with our Genesis reading as well uh, before we're done. So the author of Hebrews writes this, verse 10, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes the people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am. And the children of God, and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humility so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by fear and death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people." Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. See, in verse 10, the writer of Hebrews begins by laying it out clearly. It was the suffering of Christ that first brought about this atonement for us. You know, in this idea of the actual intricacies that took place with Christ's suffering and death to somehow atone for our sins could take years to try and explain and figure out. And, and, and scholars, what's interesting is, is scholars have spent a lot of time trying to figure out and define exactly what it is and how it works, only to find out that there's someone who, using the Bible, has come up with just a slightly different thought or a slightly different understanding or maybe a complete different understanding. 
You know, we could spend forever on this, but what we need to know for tonight as we prepare for communion is this is the foundation. That it was Christ's suffering, his death, and his resurrection that provide this for us. And that this idea of atonement, of substitutionary atonement, something having to take the punishment, is, I think, something that's been ingrained in humankind since forever. Because we were made in the image of God, God then gave us this thing about him, this, this desire for justice that was so important. If you think back to the story of Cain and Abel back or even earlier in Genesis, Cain kills his brother Abel, and, and God says, hey, no one punish him for what he did. The punishment is on me. I'll deal with it. Early on, we see in Scripture that people had a desire for justice. They knew that someone would want to pay Cain back for what he did to Abel, and God said, no, this is my job. Since the start, God has put this desire for justice, this desire and understanding for atonement inside of us. And what's amazing about that to me, especially with Cain and Abel, and with this story about Abraham and Isaac, is that God is willing, way, way before Christ, to step in and bear the consequence of sin. We see God throughout all of the Old Testament giving grace to humans when it was not deserved. And as we know, this theme is then carried out all the way to Christ, who will be this final perfect sacrifice for our sins. And in verse 11, the author of Hebrews says that it is for this reason, for this reason we are all made equal, that we become brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God. And the one who is in charge of this system, we all become benefactors. This system, this system of justice, of atonement for wrongs, is, is ingrained in all of creation. And you know, it's funny, people will look at the story of Abraham and Isaac and think, oh, this book is antiquated and it's old-fashioned and it's weird. And then they'll look at the story of Jesus and think, this just doesn't hold up to today's society. Why would this matter? But what's amazing about this is just this last week, um, I listened to a Bible scholar on on, on Paul talk about this idea of self-worth. Right? There's a crisis right now among young people of self-worth. And, and, and what's fascinating about it is that the Bible actually preaches this. The gospel actually says that because we are all sinners, that Christ actually brings us all up to an even playing field. That our worth is found in Christ, and even though with social media and globalization, it's easy for us to covet, it's easy for us to desire what someone else has, That God says, no, we're all equal. That we have all become sons and daughters. Like we just sang in that wonderful song. And even though our desire is to compare and to to feel like we're not good enough because of some reason, God actually says through the gospel of Jesus Christ, no. I have lifted you all to an even playing field. Your worth is found in the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. And you are righteous. See, atonement is not just for some far-off idea of one day getting to heaven or one day trying to get out of hell. Atonement is for us each and every day to know that God gives us value and God gives us worth and God gives us standing in the kingdom of God. And in verse 12 in Hebrews, the writer quotes Psalm 22. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters and in the assembly I will sing your praises. 
So not only are we given worth in the kingdom of God, but he actually says, no, that Jesus on our behalf is singing our name, is singing our praises in the assembly of God, in the throne room of God. And what's awesome about Psalm 22 that makes it even better is this is the same psalm Jesus quoted on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the back half of that psalm. See, people think, and this is my interpretation, but people think when Jesus quoted that on the cross, he was angry at God. No, Jesus was just pointing to this, pointing to the atonement, pointing to the fact that this sacrifice he was making was that we would be called sons and daughters of God. Isn't that cool? That because of the atonement, Jesus is declaring your name in the holy assembly. Even though we may feel rejected at times or unrepresented. See, this psalm he quotes was not about being forsaken. I really truly believe that Jesus was quoting this psalm to point people to the redemption God will bring to all people. And that God will redeem us, that God will vindicate us because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And that is why the author of Hebrews then goes on in verse 13 to quote Isaiah. He says, here I am. I will put my trust in him. The response to the atonement of the cross of Jesus Christ is to say just the same way Abraham did, here I am. God says, Abraham, Abraham, Lord, here I am. Go and do this. I don't really want to do that, God. But he does it. And then when it comes time for him to, you know, take the Lego knife to his son, he says, Abraham, and he says, here I am again. And the response of the cross, the response of the atonement is that we would put our trust in God. And in verse 14, in doing so, the atonement of Jesus Christ breaks the power of sin and death forever. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Verse 15, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. See, the atonement is not just for heaven and hell. The atonement is for your Monday tomorrow to be free from the sin that has entangled you. The atonement is to be able to love that unlovable person because no one else will love them. The atonement makes you a holy representative here and now in the kingdom of God. In verse 16, surely it's not for angels he does this, but for the descendants of Abraham, who as we know through the gospel of Jesus Christ has extended to the Gentiles. This is the power of the atonement. Verse 17, for this reason he had to be made like them fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. He might make atonement for your sins because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to now help you when you are being tempted. See, people always think of Easter and the cross as something, well, it gets, you know, gets me out of hell or it gets me to heaven one day. Think about that, though. Look back at the story of Abraham and Isaac. You have the story of Abraham, which we know. God called him and said, I will make you a father of many nations. And then Abraham lived a perfect life. Absolutely not. 
Abraham failed over and over and over again. Said his wife was his sister not once but twice. Has a kid with his maidservant. Then God doesn't speak to him for a number of years. Actually, it's really interesting. If you go back to the story of Abraham, and I tell a lot of people this when it comes to waiting on the Lord. After Abraham has Ishmael, it says he's 86 years old. And then the very next sentence is, and then when Abraham was 99. Imagine messing up and doing something and God doesn't speak to you. At least it's not recorded for 13 years. <laughs> Abraham was not, it's funny to me that the, that the Jews always identify as sons and daughters of Abraham. He was not this great model of faith his whole life. But after the waiting and after the sin and the struggling with faith in his life, then comes this promise and this test. And people have often pointed to this as a fundamental problem with God. It doesn't make sense. It's whatever. But that operates on a presupposition that we have some sort of freedom or level ethical playing ground or playing field with God. That we somehow think that we are smart enough and free enough in our free choices that our ethics are on par with God's ethics and that we understand why he does things. And if you feel like your ethics are very strong and you have a good argument for this, um, let me just tell you, you don't. Because our views are only based on our experience. Our views are based on relationships and people who maybe have loved us or hurt us. And, and so the problem is, is our views are very circumstantial and very anecdotal, meaning they come from stories. And God says, no, listen, this is something, this desire for justice is something I've had since the beginning, and I always will have. And I have put it inside of you that you would see the power of the cross, not that you would turn your back on me. Look at the atonement with Christ. Jesus Christ taught that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is here and it is now. And if we understand the atonement for what I believe it really does represent, what God is trying to show us is that this kingdom of God is not just for when we die and get to heaven, but for tomorrow at work when it's raining and you don't want to go. That we are all sinners and we're not just waiting for some afterlife but that we are intended to be free now and bring pieces of this kingdom to earth. If the basic understanding of atonement is that substitution of punishment, you think about the famous courtroom example evangelists use, right? You're in a courtroom, you're sentenced to death, and then Jesus comes in and says, no, I will take your punishment, I will take your pain, and then you're free to go. The great thing about that is that the person doesn't just die and immediately go to heaven. They're now free to live their life. They're not free to live their life with a second chance. You think about the story of Abraham and Isaac. We always talk about the faith of Abraham. Consider the faith of Isaac. He's old enough to carry firewood. He's old enough to figure out there's no sacrifice. I don't know about how you were. Youngest, maybe 10 years old. I was able to fight back at that age. And if someone tried to tie me down, I probably would not have gone so easily. But it doesn't say that. It says that Isaac trusted his father, that Isaac laid down and went through this. And we are called to not only believe like Abraham, but also to believe like Isaac. That God might call us to do crazy things. And because of the atonement in Jesus Christ, we are free to go on and live life like Isaac got to do. To be the father of many nations. Isaac was not only made free from his fate, but he was free to live on and do good things. And so too are you. Christ stepped in and took the punishment. And you don't have to wait for the gift 
of that atonement. You don't have to wait for the result of that atonement. He says it is here and it is now. Isaac believed his father loved him and believed God loved him and to do so was to be obedient. And Jesus has done the same for you. And so the question is, are you obedient to what Christ is asking you to do? Because the scriptures are clear on atonement. You know, many people will take verses like John 3.16 or, or, or 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, which you can look up later if you want. We don't really have time. But, but there are these verses that talk about God dying for all and loving all people. And so what people then do is they say, well, God's probably going to save everyone. You know, I just can't figure out how God would do this. You know, there's a great movie right now on Netflix called Come Sunday about a preacher who eventually stops believing in hell and becomes a universalist. It's actually really good. But to me, and I I hear these stories about pastors or preachers or Christians reading stories and thinking, you know, no, I just can't get my brain around hell. I can't get my brain around being separated from God. I don't think it's right. I don't think it's good. But my question is, if that's the case, then why even bother with Jesus? Why even bother with the cross? You know, to say that that there is no punishment for sin is, to me, it just minimizes the whole Old Testament. All the prophets, all the law, all the things that people went through. There must be some level of punishment for sin. There must be some level of consequence for those people who live their entire life rejecting God. You know, Tim Keller American pastor and author, some of you have read his books, he he sort of paraphrased it like this. And I hope this helps you. It helps me to simplify this. He says, suppose you come to my office and you break my lamp. That lamp costs $50, 50 Swiss francs. Now, you can pay me that 50 Swiss francs for the lamp and pay your debt. Or me, being a nice pastor, you've come to my office and you've broken my lamp, I can forgive you that debt of 50 francs. Right? But if I forgive you, now what's happening? I'm assuming the cost for the lamp. I'm assuming now that I have to pay 50 francs or sit in the dark. So even though I have forgiven you for breaking that lamp, there is still a cost. Either I take the cost of the 50 francs or I sit in the dark. And it's a very simple analogy, but if you think about it, I believe it's true that every single debt costs something to someone. And that someone always has to pay for a debt. It comes from somewhere. I mean, think about it in the financial world. It comes from somewhere. Okay, someone may be covering it or an insurance company may be backing it to get a payout later, but someone is paying for these things. And in the same way, some people say that this idea of atonement makes God a tyrant. I would argue that this actually makes God worthy of our worship. It makes him truly good. Because he has made justice and goodness a priority. And he has interwoven it into his creation, into who we are that we would be without excuse when he sent Jesus Christ. That we would see his sacrifice and know that it is good. Do you believe the cross of Christ was necessary for you? Do you believe that you needed it? That you need it today? That you will need it tomorrow? And you'll most likely need it Tuesday and Wednesday and every day after? Because I believe God stepped in to do this, that the atonement represents a glimpse of what he has for us for eternity. He did it to fix what we broke. To allow us to see what we rejected. 
You know, and finally, I just want to say this. One last argument against this is, why didn't God just change the rules just this one time? Why can't God, he made the rules, why can't he just change the rules this one time? You know, people have different theories about this, and people have different opinions. I want to share with you a quote from one of my favorite pastors. He's a guy named Sky Jatani, and he's got a devotional called With God Daily. You can get it in your email every day. It's awesome. But with regard to the atonement and theories of the cross, he says this, We must not confuse theories that explain how Jesus' death conquered evil with the fact that it has. Scripture itself offers different interpretations of the cross, and each one affirms the same present reality that Jesus' death has freed us by defeating the power of sin, death, and evil. Many people think they know all of the intricacies of the theology of how this worked out. The important thing for us to know is that it did work. The important thing for us is to believe that it was good. And this atonement not only frees us from death later, but like Isaac, it gives us the freedom to live out the rest of our days on earth with joy. It gives us worth in a world where the world is constantly trying to bring us down. And the pressures of society and of other people tell us that we are not good enough. The atonement gives us worth, makes us stand up straight as children, as daughters and sons of God. It restored our value from being broken and sick to being heirs to the kingdom. God has done it. Do you accept it? Do you trust like Isaac? Do you trust like Jesus did? Do you trust that God's plan is good? Let's pray. Lord God, we give you this time. And as we prepare to come to the table of communion, Lord, we give you this time. Knowing that the atonement was not just for a later date, was not just for the day we die, Lord, but that it was to lift us up here and now to fill our hearts with love and joy and all the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, to give us the Holy Spirit in Pentecost, which we will celebrate next week, Lord, we know what the atonement was for, and for it we say thank you. And Lord, as we go to the communion table tonight, I pray that you would search our hearts and know us. Lord, thank you. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.